Welcome back to the Global Digital Banker. My name is Adele Grissard and this is RFI Group's Insight-backed podcast focused on key trends, thought leadership and best practice within the fast-growing and dynamic world of digital banking. In this episode, we take a look at the global state of digital identity. From the West, we hear from John Eric Setsos, identity architect at Signicat, And from the East, we hear from Jonathan Thorpe, Head of Identity at the Australian Government Digital Transformation Agency. John Eric Setsos shares how financial institutions can position themselves at the centre of this technological shift, the opportunities to banks for investing within this space, and some great examples of institutions that are leading in the market. So my name is Sarah Hollinshead, Group Head of Content for RFI Group, and I am so pleased today to be joined by John Eric Setsos, who's Identity Architect for Signicat, so come over from Norway today, um, and looks after the European region, and is here today to talk all about digital identity and, and referencing some of the fantastic partnerships that Signicat have, uh, most notably with Rabobank. And so thank you so much for joining us today, John Eric. Well, thanks for having me on here. I appreciate that. Absolutely. So it's been said that identity is the new money. And so it's, it's becoming more and more important, especially with so many data breaches of late. It's a very hot topic um, all around ensuring that safe identity. So how can financial institutions be at the center of this movement? Right. I mean, it's true. I mean, the most valuable natural resource today is data, users' mm. data. So it's being used a lot. And, and yeah, we need to take care of it. And it's about trust, trusting the data. And I think that's where financial institutions, they have verified my identity. They have rules. They have the, the anti-money learning directive and onboarding. So they have a verified identity. Yeah. And that's where they can help in this process to assure who I am, who the people are. And can you give some specific examples from around the world where you've really seen financial institutions play an important role in this? I mean, I think what we're seeing now, we have, as you mentioned, Rabobank is, is one customer and they are setting up what we call a disparate digital identity service provider to provide identity services to their clients, right? So I think for the banks taking that role is, is really important. That's where they can, can step up and benefit from this. Can you talk more about those specific benefits? Um, well... Any service provider somehow need to know who they're dealing with at one level or another. Right? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the typical now is whenever you sign up to a new service, you will have to, you know, provide the same information again and again and again, right? And every service provider needs to verify this information as well. So instead of doing that, why not go to an identity provider or a digital identity service provider who then can do this on behalf of you or, or have the done it and then can verify well this john eric that you're talking to well he is you know we verified he is really who he claims to be mm. and with such a, a sort of um transient population there are so many different opportunities where people need to verify their information if they're going abroad or if they're applying for a new bank account or you know whether it's private or public so i imagine mm. the need for this has increased significantly as well well the need is increasing and especially for for us as uh, you know citizens or people we want a simple way to do this mm. uh, and the, the challenge is we have so many uh, places we log in we have so many password credentials we need to remember and of course it would be so much more convenient if i had one way of identifying myself and i could use that everywhere mm. And I mean, we, we're seeing that in, in Norway now. 
I have my bank ID and I use that for everything. Wow. Well, almost everything, but it's getting more and more tractions. So that's, you know, one way of identifying me and I can use that in many different uh, instances. So what is your view on that ownership of the identity? So you're saying in Norway it sits with the bank, uh, but I imagine you can use that for public services. I know in many other markets around the world, it's the government that are leading this digital identity um, piece. So Mm. what's your view on that ownership and does that create any potential problems? Right. Well, um, again, back to bank ID. It was started as a bank consortium in Norway by the bank. So actually each bank is doing the KYC process. But then I can use the bank ID, of course, for my bank, which I use uh, often. I can use it when I do my taxes. I can use it with my insurance company. I can log into my health service and renew my prescriptions or book, you know, a, um, a doctor's appointment. Uh, it's also now being used for a peer-to-peer platform uh, where I, as a private person, can become a verified seller or buyer again by using bank ID. Mm. So we see more and more uses of this. and. Of course, for me as a user, it's very convenient to have only one. If I had a different one for government, which I use, what, once, twice a year when I do my taxes and so Mm. on, I would have forgotten how to use it between every time. Okay, so as for, um, well, ownership, I mean, the digital identity is a representation of me, right? It represents me as a physical person, which in my book, I own the data. Right, but somebody needs to attest to it. I mean, if I come up to you and claim my name is John Eric, well, you say, how can you trust that? Well, I need somebody to verify it. And how do I do that today? Well, I have a passport, which is a government issued document that uh, attests to that. And and I'll have to do that for uh, you know any kind of attribute to be trusted. Um, I think I mean we've seen initiatives with governments. Try to do this, but I, I think the focus is too narrow because they're focused on government services, mm-hmm. which I don't use that often. So you don't really have the business case. So in my book, I think banks are the perfect uh, players to provide these identity services mm. because they are trusted. Well, at least in most parts of the world, you trust the banks, you trust them with the money. So they should step up and then provide these services, but not limit them to banks, provide them, you know, to the whole market. So you get, you know, this really good user experience and thereby also high security. Mm. It's such a good, it's such a good point around frequency of usage because people will log into their, you know, banking app and check their balance fairly regularly, two, three times a week. Exactly. Whereas, yeah, whenever I go into a government service, it's like, oh God, what's my password? What emails for this? Like, everyone goes through that same struggle. Right. And same with insurance company, right? I mean, and normally when you contact the insurance company, you've had a problem, right? Right. You have something to report and you definitely not want to have the hassle by Mm. how do I log into this service? Mm. You want to use the same same service again absolutely so i mean it's, it's two parts it's who is you know hosting it but you still need the attestation of the attributes so a service provider or anybody else can verify that you know these data can be trusted mm. and it's all about trust and with that on that trust point and that ownership of data psd2 has obviously brought that to the forefront massively across Europe. So around who owns that data when there is going to be such an increase of sharing of that data, of customers' data. So how are you seeing those regulatory challenges impacting how digital identity initiatives are going to progress? Well, P2 
PSD2, of course, is a challenge for, for the banks because they need to open up access to their, uh, you know, their data, right? The, my bank accounts and so on can be accessed. Um, but this also, well, and that's one part. And the other one is the strong customer authentication, mm. right? Where you put higher requirements. It's going to be more stress on me as the end user uh, because I have to do this more frequently. So banks both need to open up uh, to the data and they need to have better methods for strong customer authentication that's uh, more frictionless. But I also see opportunities for banks here. And one is, I mean, they're opening up the um, uh, account information service, right? But of course, they will also be or should be consumers of this. I would expect when I log into my bank after this, it would say, well, hey, John, you have accounts in, in other banks. Can we connect to them as well? Mm. So they can get, you know, a full view of not only accounts in their own bank, but also in the other banks. Um, and of course, then, you know, use this data to say, hey, I see from your usage pattern of your mobile phone, you, you know, you have this provider, but it would be cheaper to change this. I mean, you could benefit from things like that. But also then provide more services. Um, and since you have to do this work of setting it up, you need to uh, do a cleanup job with the identities to provide ESA and the login, etc. Mm. Why not go down the road and set up a DISP at the same time, a digital identity service provider? You have to do the platform, you have to have the APIs. Uh, and of course, it's regulated how much money you can make on those APIs. But the DISP service is not regulated, so you can charge for onboarding. Mm. And of course, any AISP that's going to provide these services, they would want to onboard me as a user as well, yeah. right? Instead of them doing them themselves, they can say, well, go to the bank and, uh, and uh, you know, get verified data by John Eric. Mm. That's a great overview of the specific ways that banks can benefit. And I know you've spoken about the work that you're doing with Rabobank around the DISP proposition. Can you talk more about some specific um sort of feedback from the bank and the bank's customers as to how that's going? Well, I, I think the, the uh, having this central service of identities is, uh, you know, good for the, for the service providers. Mm. And also offering additional services. One is the identity service, but I mean close to that is the electronic signatures. And you, you often need that in a business transaction. So being able to have you know, a trusted party, a bank in this case, providing both the identity, but also the means to do electronic signatures and seals is, is very beneficial. Hmm. And you've spoken about uh, the Nordics and, and sort of a European lens on digital ID, but there are some, you know, more developing markets around the world, India, for example, who have some really market leading um, offerings in terms of biometrics and, and identity. Are there any of those markets that, for our global listeners, are really pioneering in this space that you think people should be looking to? Well, I think I mean I'm foc we're focusing mainly on on Europe, and yeah. I think of course um, of course Estonia is is very far ahead. I mean in wow. Estonia, you can do anything digitally except buying and selling property and getting married and divorced. Okay. That's the two well, exceptions. That would be a bleak marriage, wouldn't it, if you were doing that online? <laughs> right, you just, you know, hit the divorce button and you're done, right? I do. Click. <laughs> so, yeah, but but I mean, they're, they're very advanced. And of course, they, they have the advantage of being a small uh, country. And it's, it's quite interesting, the story behind how they got there and how they set it mm. up. So they are very advanced. I also know Azerbaijan is very far ahead on the identity and I know they're looking to Africa now to provide mm. identity services, you know, similar kind of model there. So 
there's a lot of, of things going on. You should also mention, I mean, there's a lot of talk about self-sovereign identity, of course, these mm. days. And, you know, I want to be in control of my own identity, which is true. Of course, I want I want to control who I share with what. And, of course, GDPR is going to help us on that. So GDPR is very good for us as the users. I think some challenges with the self-sovereign identity, if, if I'm the only one that holds the you know, key, the password to my identity, people forget. Mm. I mean, the most used uh, feature for help desks is I forgot my password, yeah. right? <laughs> and people don't back up, right? That's, you know, just a fact. People forget and people don't back up. Yeah. And I think those two things talk against having sort of a self-sovereign identity in the true sense. But in the concept where I'm in control of my data, I control who I share, which data I share with whom. It's a very good idea, but mm. you need someone to host it. Yeah. And guess who would that be? The banks, right? They are trusted. They could do this. You would have some sort of key escrow in place that in case I lose my key, well, I could have have to go through maybe a cumbersome process, but still I'd be able to recover my uh, the access to my ID. Mm. And I want to close with a really a sort of blue skies question, but do you think there will ever be a universal digital identity? It would be great, wouldn't it? It would be amazing. It would be fantastic. <laughs> Can you make it happen, John Eric? <laughs> Well, <laughs> I mean, there are several challenges with that. I mean, it's one thing is the politics. I mean, different countries have different politics on this. I mean, just look at privacy, for example, just the difference between Europe and the US, how you view privacy, which is, of course, an important part of this. Um, so, whether, I mean, it's, it's difficult to, to predict what's happening. But I mean, if, if I could really put my view on what I would like to see. I mean, I would like to have one way to identify myself. I would like to have the possibility to create different personas, saying either I'm John Eric, the identity architect at Signicat, or I'm John Eric, the photographer, or I want to be this uh, anonymous uh, person at the chat room, uh, all with the same identity. And of course, anonymity is important, Mm. but still, if I break the law, it should be able to come back and see who I am. And uh, then also uh, be able to do what we know uh, called zero knowledge proof. I can prove that I'm over age or prove I'm a real person, which is important in chat rooms, without revealing my true identity. So, I mean, these are goals we are looking for. When or whether we'll get there, well, it's difficult to say, but uh, that would be my view. One way of identifying different personas and then allow anonymity and with, with it being global, do you think blockchain could play a role in making that more of a possibility? Blockchain is a very interesting technology. Um, but the blockchain by itself, it's only a technology. Yeah. You still have the issues of trust. You have the issues of attestation. You will still need somebody to attest to the attributes. Just putting them on the blockchain doesn't make it true. Mm. So it has interesting properties. And of course, this is what uh, the World Bank is doing with the ID2020 project trying to establish identities for the what one and a half billion people that cannot prove their identity, mm. trying to set up uh, you know, a distributed ledger for doing that. But this is difficult because, again, how do you know these attributes are true, etc.? That's not solved by technology. That's solved by all the surrounding things that independent of the te- technology itself. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for shedding some light on on what is some of the most complex innovations, but also the most exciting that are impacting financial services and particularly, but everybody's customers' lives in the future. So thank you so much for joining us. Okay. Thank you for having me. 
Jonathan Thorpe explains the next phase of work for the digital identity framework, the organizations that they're partnering with to implement the solutions, and how they build trust and mitigate against risks for consumers. Chloe James here for the Global Digital Banker podcast. Really excited to be chatting to Jonathan Thorpe, who is the head of identity at the Digital Transformation Agency in Australia. Jonathan, great to have you on. Just kicking off, I think it would just be wonderful to hear from you exactly about your role and and what exactly you do at the Digital Transformation Agency. Yeah, sure. And thank you for your time this morning. So yes, my name is Jonathan and I look after the uh, digital identity group within the Digital Transformation Agency and in particular, have responsibility for the GovPass program, which was one of the announceables in last last week's federal budget. Amazing. So yeah, big week for you last week, I would obviously imagine. In that, I think it's uh, interesting to note the Digital Transformation Agency have just been given $92 million to build the next phase of this digital identity system. So, I mean, that's some big stuff. It's some big bucks uh, to do things with, Jonathan, which is awesome. What are you intending to do with that funding? Thank you. There's a few things we're looking to try and tackle in the first year for GovPass. And, and the first component is really to establish uh, the digital identity system and the digital identity ecosystem. Um, and in that comprises of a few components. There's something around the, the rules of the system. So who's involved in providing digital identity solutions and, and what standards and accreditation they'll need to meet. And we refer to that as the trusted digital identity framework. There's also some other components um, that build the identity solution and and, uh, one of those is the Commonwealth Identity Provider and essentially that's the service that a citizen will see and use to prove who they are to a very high standard uh, online. There's another few components which bring it all together and we refer to that as the exchange and it manages information uh, between identity providers and the services that are requesting identity and and then requesting uh, to prove who someone is before a service is provided to them. Um, And it ensures trust and privacy and and allows for things like consent of information and and data to be passed between parties to ensure that the system has a high degree of integrity. Yeah, and I imagine that must be just of absolute importance uh, to the agency. On that note then, Jonathan, when it comes to building trust, how do you build that trust and how do you really mitigate against risks when it comes to trust and I guess customers using the interfaces that you have? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and a lot of it comes down to good policy design and good service design. So what's behind GovPass and the announceable that um, you may have heard about last week is essentially two and a half years worth of policy work. Um, and that policy work is all about um, essentially engaging with all uh, sectors, uh, private and public industry groups, privacy associations, um, and right down to individuals to understand what are the key issues that we need to tackle and account for uh, when we describe digital identity and ensuring that they're involved in the formulation of policy. So essentially that's one part of it. The next part is whilst I'm talking about building a digital identity system, we're very much looking at this from an iterative process in terms of we're going to be launching a series of pilot services in the first year but each one of those is what we refer to as a beta uh, service to essentially understand how users traverse the the system, understand what the opportunities and challenges will be with digital identity mm. uh, before we go for full rollout so we can understand what uh, opportunities we can uh, identify to improve the service before it goes out to large-scale rollout. Fantastic. So you're working with lots of different people to, to make that all seamless. Excellent point. Brings me on to my next question 
about who you're working with. What sort of organizations are you working with to really kind of partner and implement the solution that you have? And I'm and I'm thinking of that for advice for people out there who might be interested in how these kind of projects come together. So certainly at a digital identity system level, we we're partnering with a couple of government agencies and, and reusing some existing capabilities and building on those capabilities mm-hmm. to deliver the, the system itself. So, for example, the Australian Taxation Office uh, will be providing the Commonwealth Identity uh, Solution. So that's very much what users will see to verify who they are and provide the necessary information like birth certificate, driver's licence and passport information and so Mm -hmm. forth. At a Commonwealth level, we've worked with over 20 agencies and various industry representation from banks, Australia Post, for example, Australian Payment Network from the financial services perspective Mm -hmm. and a whole range of research and looking at all ranges of... um, the the citizen cohort to understand different types of challenges and and needs they would have to operate in a digital agency. Fantastic. There are obviously so many moving parts. Working with all those different partners, I guess I would assume that you'd look around the world at other places, you know, that, that are sort of doing something similar. Can you let us know where else you might be looking for around the world when it comes to best practice and I guess innovation in general in that digital identity space? Yes, absolutely. There's two parts to that, obviously. One is just looking at what the policy context is internationally around identity. And that's formed a lot of the the two and a half years worth of policy work we've done to date to get to where we are. And essentially, that's looking at sort of how other um, countries have have tackled or or struggled through digital identity, if I could be blunt. Um, One of the things that we're not describing here is things like a national ID or anything like that. It's very much user-controlled and user consent, they have control of their data and they choose where that data goes. And that's very different to some other identity systems that may be occurring in in Europe, for example. But a lot of the stuff that we've been doing is essentially looking at models in Canada, for example. They have a very similar policy framework to what we're describing as part of the digital trusted identity framework and just understanding how they've been able to operate and how they can foster Uh, private sector contribution and participation in digital identity, which is one of the cornerstone pieces of GovPass and the Trusted Digital Identity Framework that whilst we describe the challenge that we have across government about citizens needing to prove who they are and the opportunity to prove government services, our vision is very much looking at how we can bring this across the broader digital economy. Mm. I love the Canadian example and that's really interesting given all the other similarities between Canada and Australia. That's a really interesting piece. Is that driven by the Canadian government? Is that who you're in conversations with? Yeah, yes, predominantly. And and the reason for that is that the Canadian government has driven the policy form- formulation around digital identity, but again has been able to foster and consider the broader economic opportunity of digital identity and, and allow for participation beyond just the federal commonwealth services. Fantastic. Interesting to see how this will all come into play and how it'll help the Australian community. What do you think are the real sort of biggest efficiencies that are created with the digital identity framework? What are the biggest changes that, you know, the everyday person out there are are going to see and experience? Sure. So certainly in year one, as I mentioned before, we'll be undertaking a range of pilot programs to understand how digital identity will work in the context of existing government services. And we're doing that because we believe that we should be able to provide an easier way for citizens to access those services. So quite often today, for a citizen to be able to access a government service, they have to prove who they are. Uh, Most of those requirements are done through face-to-face interactions. So you need to present yourself at a government shop front, for example, or Australia Post. 
under the GovPass program, you'll be able to verify your, your identity to a very high standard using things like driver's license and passport information, for example, mm. um, without having to present yourself to a shop front to the convenience of your home, um, be able to complete a transaction without having to go offline, essentially. Um, and we believe that that would provide some efficiencies, obviously, for citizens and some benefits. Um, but it also means that you can do that once and you can reuse your digital identity. So if you, for example, verify who you are with the Australian Taxation Office, you'll be able to do that as part of the pilot programs with Department of Human Services. Mm. You'll be able to, for example, claim new start allowance just by way of one example without having to verify your identity again. You can reuse it. So it's certainly an efficiency point of view from there. And from a government point of view, it's obviously... Um, far more efficient to be able to uh, provide services digitally than face-to-face as well. More extensible to the is essentially looking at the perspective of being able to reuse, reuse that beyond the Commonwealth. Um, so again, if we have the opportunity in the future, which is certainly something we, we'd like to look to and consider, and we are working with the private sector on future opportunities, is to be able to use that digital identity almost across the entire digital economy. So being able to use your identity to think for, to transact in the financial sector, for example, uh, without having to prove who you are every time you have a new interaction with an organisation. Yeah, which is one of the biggest challenges for the banking community globally, certainly in Australia, but certainly elsewhere as well. So on that, what is the role of banks when it comes to digital identity and what more can they do or where can they look to? What, what are your suggestions there? How, how are they going at the moment even? <laughs> I'll comment on, on what the opportunities look like. Certainly from a, from a policy perspective, the Trusted Digital Identity Framework has flexibility and encourages participation from the private sector in the broader digital economy. And to that extent, we are currently talking to the the financial network and the major banks around what the potential opportunities look like for them uh, under GovPass and and the broader framework. Mm. And that can come from a range of different opportunities. One from being an identity provider, for example, based on um, an existing customer base and relationships is often referred to as KYC, but also just things like financial attribute verification as well. So there's a range of roles that banks could potentially play or the, or the broader financial sector in providing a digital identity ecosystem. And also a future opportunity could be things like the services that actually access digital identity as well, not just providing the identity. Absolutely. So many opportunities there. And I'm sure the banks are just jumping on this. They already are doing a lot in this space, but it's certainly a way to go forward. Just finishing up then, Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. Such an interesting space. What does success look like for you then with the digital identity framework? How are you going to measure that? Sure. So certainly in the first year, we've got a fairly clear target of what we're trying to achieve. We want to build our digital identity system. We're targeting eight Commonwealth services in the first year. But where we turn our minds to is how far we can take digital identity across the Australia's digital economy. And a lot of our drivers and and our vision actually stems from uh, the financial services inquiry that occurred in 2015, talking about the potential opportunity and the fragmented identity that exists today. You don't need to go too far to look at reports commissioned, for example, by Australia Post that talk to potential uh, economic value of up to $11 billion if we address digital identity properly. Um, And that's certainly where we turn our minds to is essentially allowing a policy that invites private sector participation. We create a digital identity ecosystem and it works for everyone. Sounds good to me. Thank you so much, Jonathan Thorpe there from the DTA as their head of identity. Thanks for your time. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the episode this week. To view the show notes from this episode, head to globaldigitalbanker.com. To get in touch with us, check us out on Instagram, globaldigitalbanker.com. 
Twitter at GDB Podcast or on Facebook under Global Digital Banker Podcast. If you're interested in being a part of the show or would like to let us know what you think of this episode, email us at gdbpodcast at rfigroup.com.